You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. The Bible reading for tonight will be from Psalms 32 verse 1 to 11. I'll be reading from the CSB version. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained, as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great flood waters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Good evening. I'm going to pray, then we're going to get into it. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together this weekend. And uh, thanks for good food that we've enjoyed, and thank you for your word that we've just heard, and thank you for this opportunity to think about the big story of the Bible. As we do that, we pray that this would not be mere information about the story, but that you would draw us into the story, that you would write us into the script, and that our lives would be changed by the story that you've told, the true story of this world. And so we ask for this in and through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we often uh, talk about relationships being complicated. Have you ever been in a complicated relationship? No? No one? Oh, that's lovely. Uh, I'm so pleased for you. Think, uh, Think about a couple of girls best friends, hang out together all the time, just get on so well, uh, constantly in communication, talk for hours. But, you know, even though such a good friendship, sometimes it goes wrong, sometimes they misread cues. Once one of them sent a text to the other, there was no reply for three minutes. And, uh, like, she just thought the whole thing was over. Then one of them gets a boyfriend. Oh, man, that's complicated. All of a sudden, all the dynamics in the relationship change. 
Three months later, they break up. Oh, that's complicated. The other one just got used to never seeing her. Now she's got to be there 24-7. You get it? I know you've, none of you have been in that, but trust me, there are people out there where life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. Raising kids is complicated. Um, we've got five kids. Kind of a social experiment. Uh, you need a big enough sample base. Uh, first kid, we thought, we have nailed this parenting thing. Um, we had a compliant perfectionist who's now a lawyer. And, uh, yeah, we just thought, parenting's so easy and we're so good at it. And then we had number two, had, like that raised some question marks about our parenting. Number three, a couple more. It was number four. Like, you've got to, you've got to have a number uh, of kids to work these things out. Number four, Mamma Mia. <laughs> we just suddenly realised, we haven't got a clue what we're doing. We've been parenting for years. We haven't got any ideas. We're this strong-willed, independent, passionate little redhead girl. Boy, uh, it, it was complicated. Um, number five, uh, she got married earlier this year. We have a lovely, lovely relationship. But, yeah, the last few years have been complicated. That's, that's family life. Churches are complicated. I don't know yours isn't, but I've seen other churches. Sometimes churches are very, very complicated organizations. You put together a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different personalities, different experiences, different expectations, and all of them imperfect. And it's complicated. Relationships are complicated, and that's why they're so great. If, if you just related to an automatum, a machine, it wouldn't be complicated, and it wouldn't be rich. Uh, relationships are complicated because we are complicated people. We have emotions, we have passions, we have desires, we have life stories, we have pasts and presents and futures, and you put a couple of people together like that, or you put a hundred people together like that, that's massively complicated and hugely rich. You don't want to just relate to someone who is programmable who's an automatum. In a healthy relationship, there are ups and downs and ins and outs. There's complexity, there's diversity. We grieve, we hope, we celebrate, we lament. That's, that's complicated, but that's rich. And the same is true of our relationship with God. It's complicated. It's complicated relating to someone you can't see. Yeah? It's complicated relating to a holy God when you are not holy. It's complicated just getting to know God and learning to trust him in everything. And it's complicated relating to God because we are complicated and our lives go up and down. We are not programmable. We're not always the same. It's complicated but rich. And if you want a commentary, an extended commentary on the rich complexity 
of relating to God, read the Old Testament. All of it. Uh, That's our Bible reading tonight. Uh, We should really be reading from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4. Uh, That's our text this evening, the rest of the Old Testament. And it's in the rest of the Old Testament that we encounter the next two stages in the great drama of redemption. Chaos and relationship. Those are the two stages that we want to think about tonight. Let's start with chaos. I don't know what you think of when you think of chaos. Maybe your bedroom. Uh, maybe your hair. <laughs> maybe, maybe your desk. Maybe parliament. Or maybe you think of something much more chaotic. Uh, think of the scenes we see after a bomb has gone off. Um, probably somewhere in the Middle East. And there are sirens and there's carnage and there's blood and there's stretches and there's noise and there's dust and it's just, it's chaos. It's just horrible. And it's that level of chaos, destruction, mess, grief, that we need to have in our minds as we lurch into Genesis chapter 3. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, it was paradise. Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of intimacy, beauty, pleasure. If only the Bible stopped at the end of Genesis 2, wouldn't it be a happy little story? And they both lived happily ever after. There are another 1,189 chapters to go. And as you go into the next chapter, Genesis 3, you start a huge downward spiral. In the next few chapters, there's violence, greed, immorality, pride. Paradise is lost. There are three universal judgments. The curse of Genesis 3, the flood of Genesis 6, and the scattering of nations at Babel in Genesis 11. It's chaos in these next few chapters. And the chaos begins as Satan, the evil one, the enemy of God and of of God's people, comes along and questions God's word. Did God really say? God's holding out on you. Did he really say that? He tempts Eve, and Eve tempts Adam, and they choose to distrust God and please themselves. And immediately that disobedience leads to disaster. Now instead of intimacy and beauty and pleasure and delight, we immediately have in Genesis 3 fear, guilt, and shame. When they told God to get lost, which is really what they were doing when they broke the one, the single prohibition he gave them, he gave them a whole world of beauty and pleasure to enjoy, one prohibition as a test of their loyalty and obedience to him. When they broke that, they were telling God to get lost, and immediately they were lost. They lost their security. They lost their identity, they lost their joy. 
God had foretold them that there would be death, that they would die if they did that. And now death engulfs them. Spiritual death, fundamentally. Yes, eventually there'll be physical death as a consequence, but the heart of it immediately is spiritual death. They, they die in their relationship to God. They're cut off from God and therefore cut off from all that beauty of God. Cut off from intimacy and holiness. And hence the entrance of shame and guilt and fear. But here's the thing. When paradise is lost, an endless chase begins. They were evicted from Eden. But they craved what Eden gave them. Their hearts were still hardwired for beauty and intimacy and pleasure and joy and love, security. Now, cut off from God, humans will seek paradise anywhere and everywhere else. And you know how it plays out. We, we seek paradise, pleasure, joy, intimacy, fun, uh, well, in possessions, in education, in relationships, uh, for some people in drink, drugs, in travel, in entertainment, in dreams of beauty and acceptance and wealth. We pursue our plastic Edens. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is putting anything in this world in the place of God. In some cultures, that's a stone God that they'll bow down to and worship. But in the West, for us, it's more likely to be a desire, a career, a child, even a church ministry. One of the most scary idolatries for Christians who are committed to church is that we make ministry our idol. That's the thing that we look to for satisfaction and joy and pleasure and a sense of worth and value. Anything that captures our affection more than God is an idol. Anything that we pursue to the detriment of our relationship with God is an idol. Anything that we look to for ultimate joy and satisfaction and purpose is an idol. I think G.K. Chesterton spoke truth when he said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing. He worships anything. The problem is, the things we turn to never satisfy us. They can't meet the deep needs of our soul. They can't regain paradise for us. So what happens? We chase harder. That's what we do. We just chase harder. We run more doggedly after those things that are not satisfying us, hoping that they will. One relationship after another, one qualification after another, 
one level of wealth and success after another, one drink after another, one holiday after another, one success after another. And I think that's why many of us are so easily obsessive and why we are so readily addicted to things. And I'm not just thinking about the big ticket addictions. Certainly for some people, the, the struggle is with alcoholism or drugs or gambling or smoking. But I'm not just thinking about those standout addictions. What about workaholism? I doubt that that's an issue amongst young professional Asians, but um, uh, there are sectors of society where that's a problem. <laughs> In fact, Dan Andrews made that fascinating comment the other day, didn't he? As he stepped down, he says, I'm more than a workaholic. All I think about is the job. What about the shopaholic? Addicted to buying things because there's always the buzz, the excitement of the new, the different, the change. It doesn't have to be new. Facebook marketplace addiction. <laughs> what about the addiction of many Australians to sport? <laughs> Today's a public holiday for a footy match. Nah, we're not addicted to sport. What about our addiction to noise, entertainment, busyness, movies, Facebook, social networking, anything? Good things. I knew a guy who was listening to six sermons a day. That's, is that godly or is that excessive? I don't know. Aren't we easily obsessive, compulsive? Even if you don't have obsessive-compulsive disorder, actually you have. Our hearts are disordered such that they will constantly chase after, well, almost anything to regain a sense of paradise. And so we find that there are things in our lives that demand more and more sacrifice. Well, that's a God, isn't it? Find, find things that are stealing our affection, taking prime place in our life. We have exalted them to gods. I wonder what you chase. I wonder what you're addicted to. Here's some questions to help diagnose your own heart idolatries. Where do you repeatedly look for pleasure, security and approval? What has a grip on your heart Demanding sacrifices, but never satisfying. What do you think about when you're alone? What do you use to give yourself pleasure, joy, or reward? What messes with your emotions when you're deprived of it? I don't like those questions. They reveal heart idols.
And the problem is this, when there are things that we chase in those ways, we leave God further and further behind. In the middle of Genesis 3 to 11, we find what I think is perhaps the saddest verse of the Bible. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. God deeply grieved. How sad is that? The chaos of sin doesn't merely break God's law, it breaks God's heart. Your sin doesn't merely break God's law, it breaks God's heart because he made you for himself. He made you to delight in him, to find pleasure in him, to rejoice in him, to be satisfied in him. God wants our allegiance. He wants our love. And he's grieved by our rejection of him. So how do we live this part of the story, this this ugly reality of chaos through sin, this ugly reality of idolatry? How do we live this part of the story? I wanted to read you this from um, Matt Jacoby's book, uh, Deeper Places. He says, if it's true that God is deeply grieved, and according to the Bible it is, then the cause of this grief must of necessity become our primary concern. To come to God is to have our hearts broken by God's sadness, not only for the world he loves, but also for us. To be embraced by God is to be Shattered by the revelation of all that grieves God in our lives is to be devastated by the reality that we are the cause of the greatest suffering in the universe, the suffering of God. Friends, we live this part of the Bible's story, the sad part of the story, by acknowledging that we have grieved God. We live this by getting to a point where we recognize that the problem in the world is not just in the world, the problem of the world is in me. We've gone our own way. We've chased false gods. We've traded relationship with God for mere trinkets. We've offended a holy and just God. And I don't know about you, many of you are believers in the Lord Jesus as I am. And though I know Jesus and love Jesus, a thousand times I've turned away from him and chased after junk instead. But we come at this point to something in the Bible that's quite counterintuitive. We always think when it comes to sin and mess and chaos the wrong stuff in our lives, I think we always innately think that cover-up is the best strategy. We hide it, we minimize it, 
We justify it. We rationalize it. Adam and Eve literally tried hiding from God behind a fig leaf. It was never going to work out well, was it? They tried blaming, like Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Blaming, justifying, hiding, rationalizing, it never works. The solution that the Bible proposes is the polar opposite. Confession. We have these words that we read before in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Notice what's crushing him there. Guilt. A sense of the heaviness and the weight of God's broken heart crushing the life out of him. And so the psalm goes on to say, what a, what a joy when you confess your sin. What a joy when your sins are forgiven. Uh, confessing will not crush you. It feels like it will. It feels like owning up, telling someone about the dark things in your life, coming clean with God, coming clean with someone else. It feels like that will crush the living daylights out of you. Oh, no, friends. It'll hurt, but it won't crush you. What will crush you is hiding guilt and sin and not dealing with it. So the Bible urges us to confess. Here's the soul-refreshing practice of Act 2 in the Bible story. Readily confess the chaos of your own heart. I got it wrong. I messed up. I hurt you. I am so sorry. When did you last say something like that? To someone else? When did you last say that to a friend? Husband or wife? Parents? Kids, if you've got them? To your pastor? To someone on your ministry team? If you have to scratch your head to try and think about when you last said sorry to someone for stuffing up, either you are astoundingly holy or you're naive. And can I ask you, what sins are you readily confessing to God? Not sins generally. Uh, Lord God, please forgive all our sins. What specific sins are you confessing? It's, it's actually helpful in our growth in godliness to have a sin hit list. A little short list of the most prominent urgent sins in your life that you need to be confessing and repenting of. Have you got a little sin hit list that you're daily confessing and working on? Actually, I think there's enormous pressure in trying to always look together and be perfect. And it's wonderfully freeing 
to have a heart attitude where you can quite readily say, I've messed up again, I'm so sorry. I haven't got it all together. Later on we'll look and see in a later stage of the Bible story what God does with confessed sin. But here I just want you to notice this reality. The chaos of the world is in our hearts. And the Bible says, confess it. Well, the brilliant thing now about the Bible is that whereas we kind of wished it had stopped at the end of Genesis 2, what a mercy it doesn't stop at the end of Genesis 3. God, after the curse and the flood and the scattering at Babel, still wants relationship with people, sinful people, idolatrous people, rebellious people. God is still in for relationship. And so we move on to Act 3. Now, Act 3 covers the really big chunk of the Bible. We're now doing Genesis 12 to Malachi 4, the rest of the Old Testament. Is it possible, is it remotely possible to say in a few minutes what the whole of the Old Testament basically is about? Well, no, not really. <laughs> not, not really possible to do it much justice. But I do think there is a pulsating heart to the Old Testament. And I'm suggesting the pulsating heart to the whole Old Testament is relationship. I don't know if you were expecting that. You might say, it's going to be law. No, it's not law. The pulsating heart of the Old Testament is relationship. Have a think about it. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God starts again. It's magnificent. After three universal judgments, God has not given up on the human race. He started first with, with Adam and it went wrong. He restarted with Noah and it went wrong. Now he starts again with Abraham and it doesn't look promising. He's an old man. Uh, he's from a pagan background. He's got no kids. His wife is elderly and barren. God says to him, leave your country and go somewhere. He doesn't tell him where. He just says, leave and go. I'll show you where. And Abraham, as an old guy, has to leave all that's safe, all that's familiar, and go somewhere and believe that God will do something amazing. <laughs> it's not a promising start, is it? Uh, you know, you're looking for um, church plant core team. Well... Let's find an elderly guy who's got a pagan background and, yeah, he's in his 70s and he doesn't know where he's going. That'll work. <laughs> That's God's restart. But God restarts with promises. Here they are, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. These promises drive the rest of the Bible. Honestly, they do. These promises drive the rest of the Bible. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Three great promises here. He promises to make this one old man great. 
That's actually what the people at the Tower of Babel have been aspiring to. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. And God smashes their tower. And then he takes one old man and says, and I'll make a name for you. I'll make your name great. Greatness is not something that God's people will earn and make for themselves. It's something that God will grant them. And then he promises second to bless him. Ever since the fall, people have been living under God's curse. But now God says, now I'm going to create a new community of people I will bless. People I'll protect, watch over, enable to prosper and thrive. He'll bring life to them instead of death. And then thirdly, he promises to do that to the ends of the earth. He's going to start with this one old man. He's going to give him a miracle child from him. There's going to come 12 tribes. From the 12 tribes, there's going to come a nation. From the nation, the gospel's going to go to the ends of the earth. God has got an age-long global gospel plan, starting with this one 75-year-old man who's going to hang around until nearly 100 before he gets a kid. And God's plan is that he'll bring humanity back to himself. God wants relationship with the people of the nations of the world. The people he's just scattered at the Tower of Babel will be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we know in the Old Testament that God is dead set on relationship is he keeps making covenants. What's a covenant? Well, uh, 36 years ago, and a bit more, I made a covenant with a girl. Uh, I thought she was a very, very lovely girl. Um, spotted her at uni, went out with her, dated her for about eight months, popped a ring on her finger, and made a covenant with her. Notice there was a relationship first. There was love first, and then there was a covenant. In the covenant, it was not a contract. It wasn't like an employment contract. In a contract, it's like, uh, I work for these hours and take on these responsibilities, and the employer will provide these uh, conditions and this remuneration. But the covenant I entered into was not like that. We made promises to each other. We promised to love each other till one of us died. And one of us ain't died yet, so we still love each other. I've never promised that to an employer. I like working for the RDC, but I've never promised to love them until I die. I promise to be faithful to her and only to her as long as we both shall live. I've never promised that to an employer. It was a formal, legal, binding relationship of love and faithfulness. And that's what God did with his people. In fact, he did it multiple times to cover different bases of relationship with people. Here's a quick overview. He starts with this covenant with Abraham. It's sometimes called the covenant of grace. It's God's promise to form a worldwide, multi-ethnic, age-long community of people whom he will bless forever. 
That's what he promises Abraham. That covenant pointed forward to Jesus. But that's a story for another day, tomorrow actually. Then next, he made a covenant with Moses. Because from Abraham, a bunch of kids had been born and a tribes have been developed and a nation had formed and now he brings that nation out of slavery into their own land which he promised to Abraham as well and now he constitutes them as a nation and he gives them laws laws that will teach them how to love him back this is sometimes called the old covenant it's called the mosaic covenant it's called the sinaitic covenant because it was made at mount sinai where the laws were given The laws were not, live this way and you can come into relationship with me. The laws were, I have saved you, I've loved you, I've made covenant with you now, and this is how you love me back, by putting me first and not killing each other and not committing adultery and not stealing and by offering these sacrifices. He gives them all these laws to show how to live in relationship with the husband, God. Well, that Mosaic covenant actually ultimately points forward to the fulfillment of all those laws in Jesus. But that's a story for another day, uh, tomorrow. Uh, next is a, um, a covenant with David. The Davidic covenant in um, 2 Samuel 7 is a promise of a kingship that will last forever. Uh, God has formed this people. He's given them a king. He's ruling over them through the king. And he promises them now a perfect king, an eternal king and an eternal kingship. Covenants with them for that. Actually, that covenant points forward ultimately to Jesus. That's a story for another day. Actually, tomorrow. All these covenants called for another covenant, which the Old Testament calls the New Covenant. It would be new, not in that the law would be fundamentally changed, but now the law would be written on their hearts so that they would love God, desire him, be satisfied in him. It's a covenant that promises a new heart. Well, that covenant is ultimately fulfilled in the work of Jesus. But that's a story for another day, tomorrow. Do you get how through this, relationship is the pulsating heart of the Old Testament? God just keeps making new covenants, pledging love and faithfulness and blessing to his growing people. And the theme tune, the covenant theme tune right through Scripture, you could could do a Bible search later on and find how many times these words or close to these words are found in the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what God wants. God wants to be your God. And God wants you to be one of his people. That's God's heart. To form a people for himself who love him and respond to his love and faithfulness. What's it like then? Here's our question now. What's it like to relate to a God who's so relationally intense as God is? Well, there's one book in the Old Testament, that shows us better than any other book, I think, what it's like to relate to an intensely relational God. And it's the book of Psalms. Psalms are windows into the soul. 
and they show us the rich complexity of relating to God. There are psalms of praise that teach us how to rejoice in God and delight in God and extol God and thank God. Psalms that show us the beauty of creation and remind us to praise the Creator. There are psalms of lament. Psalms that show us how to grieve in God's presence. Actually, one third of the psalms are psalms of lament. It's a massive category. God wants us to know how to grieve in his presence. Not just rejoice, how to weep, how to mourn, how to be agonized in the presence of God. In fact, there's another category of psalm there, psalms of imprecation. Psalms that curse God's enemies. God even wants us to know how to pray against evil and opposition. There are psalms that teach us how to confess our sin as we saw we must do. And then a bunch of other psalms, psalms that show us how to delight in God's word, how to honor God as king, how to pray boldly, how to rest in the Lord, how to live wisely. There's just a whole compendium, 150 songs, fantastic. It's like God's top 150. Uh, All sorts of fantastic themes there showing us how to relate well to God. I think the problem for many of us is we want a simple relationship with God. Just keep it simple. Just tell me what to do. I just want to be able to tick the boxes, read the Bible, go to church, say my prayers, go to small group, go to weekend away, done. Good Christian boy, girl. Think of a, uh, a wife. She says to her husband, I feel like you don't love me. He says, okay, just tell me what to do. Like so male. (laughs) Tell me what to do. That misses it completely. She doesn't want a checklist. She wants a relationship. And God is the same. He's not after your checklist of doing good Christian things. He wants your heart. He wants real relationship with you. Not fake. Not impressing anyone else. Just real relationship. Again, I'll quote Matt Jacoby. To have a relationship with God is to share life with God. At the center of the sharing of life is a constant flow of communication, expressing joy when we're happy, showing gratitude when we're blessed, complaining when we feel let down, crying when we feel abandoned, supplicating when we are in need, raging at injustice, delighting in goodness, lamenting hardship, and celebrating bounty. I love that. That's real relationship with God. So, how do we live? Act three of the Bible's great story, the whopping great Old Testament act of relationship. Friends, cultivate richly honest relationship with God. Cultivate richly honest relationship with God. 
One more quote from Jacoby. Biblical faith is not a religion to observe or a code of ethics to follow. It's not even primarily a task to fulfill. Biblical faith is a relationship to enjoy. Well, as we land these two acts, chaos and relation, excuse me, relationship, uh, you have to ask, what's my relationship with God like? What's your relationship with God like? Maybe you say, eh, it's pretty good. Or, eh, struggling, pretty ordinary. Uh, maybe you say it's non-existent, I don't have a relationship with God. But actually, that, that question is kind of unhelpful unless you know the measure. What's the measure of a good relationship with God? How would you know whether you've got a good relationship with God or not? And I want to suggest this strange mark of a healthy relationship with God. A healthy relationship with God is richly complex. It goes like this. Sometimes you just stand in awe of God and you really can sing one of those praise songs and although you're at cross and crown, you almost want to raise your hands. <laughs> but like me, you're reformed and so you keep them down. But in your heart, you're just, you're delighting in God. You're Deeply thankful for who he is. Uh, you're, you're amazed at grace and you're most amazed that you've been saved. But then sometimes you struggle with yourself so much and you agonize over your own unfaithfulness and you feel so unworthy and you fear that you have grieved the Holy Spirit. And then... Then you find yourself wrestling with God. And you can't understand what God is doing or why he's allowing it. And you cry out to God and you, you argue with God. And you wonder whether he's even hearing you and whether he even cares. And sometimes you rest in him. And although you don't understand things, you just, you're just content to lean on him. And trust him as your good shepherd. And you're incredibly thankful for a sense of his presence. And all of that is before breakfast. Then there's the rest of the day. And daily, you talk to God about everything. Fears, worries, needs, hurts, disappointments, joys, blessings. What I'm saying, friends, is you have a healthy relationship with God. Not when he's some distant deity 
whom you give sporadic thought to or no thought to. You have a healthy relationship with God not when he's some exacting master whom you must please or else. Not when he's someone whom you can easily ignore for hours, days or even weeks and then think, oh, flip, I haven't been to church for a while. You have a healthy relationship with God when almost daily there's a rich complexity to the way you relate to him. Ups and downs, fears and joys, sadness, tears, laughter, praise, confusion, and God's there in the centre of all that's going on in your heart and in your life. And you don't have to fake it. You don't have to tick boxes to make him happy. He loves you. You're one of his people. And he wants you to be richly honest in all the complexity of your life. And actually, real depth of relationship, I'll finish with this thought, real depth of relationship often comes in the polarities. It's joy amidst sorrow. Hope in the middle of desperation. Praise through tears. Peace in the storm. God invites every one of you tonight into a richly complex relationship with himself. Can I pray? And as I pray, can I give you a bit of space? I'll give you a minute. I'm probably over time again. I will confess my sins. But I'd like you to give you a minute just to think about how your relationship with God is and whether there's something that you need to confess, an idol you need to own up to, or just a complexity that you need to embrace. Let's pause in prayer before God. Oh God, thank you that you don't turn away from messy people like us. Thank you that you call sinners into relationship with yourself. Thank you that you invite us into a very honest, real, complex relationship with all our ups and downs. And we just pray tonight that you would lead each one of us into that kind of relationship with yourself, terribly real, whatever that means. And whether it's entering into that for the first time or for the thousandth time, draw us back to yourself and help us to be absolutely real with you and with our sin. For Jesus' sake. Amen.